Hey everyone, here it is. It is Sunday night, November 28th. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, listen, ultimately, we give thanks to the Lord and Jesus is coming. Listen, I'm taking the night off right now, but I have a special guest for you. Guess who it is? Are you ready? Someone I don't think I've ever had here on a Sunday night. He's spoken at conferences with me. I'm going to be at his conference in January, January 27th. But right now, you're going to get a great message from one of my very dear friends and colleagues in Bible prophecy. Uh, please welcome, and you're going to enjoy this. It's uh, Jeff Kinley. God bless you guys. Man, it's great to see you guys here today. You must have heard that uh, God was going to be here or something. You guys showed up. This is awesome. Well, my name is Jeff Kinley, and you know, a lot of times I get this question whenever I come speak somewhere. Invariably, people will ask me, Jeff, what is it like to be worth $70 million? I get that question a lot. And my response is always, I have no idea. Why don't you go ask Jeff Kinney? the author of the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series, okay? <laughs> See, he's worth $70 million, that guy is, okay? Oh, what a difference one letter makes. About 70 million differences as it turns out, yeah. Well, listen, I, didn't, I grew up kind of near here, about an hour away over in Anderson, South Carolina. It's where my, my, all my relatives still, still are. And uh, my wife and I, we've been married for 39 years. That's right. And we were married when we were five years old. So you can do the math on all that. But uh, God, uh, God gave us three sons. And I actually prayed for three sons. And the reason I did is because boys was all I knew. My dad grew up in a family of nine boys and one girl. Bless her heart. Which, as you know, is a southern phrase meaning glad I'm not you. Right? <laughs> Just bless her heart. Right? And, and then my dad had three boys. And then my oldest brother had three boys. And I had three boys. So there seems to be this, um, I don't know, I think the, the, the sap in our family tree is testosterone or something, Bucky, I don't know what it is, but we just got a lot of boys in our family. Uh, but God has blessed us, uh, they're godly men now, they all have uh, families of their own. But you know, when, when they were little, we took a trip one day to, uh, one, one week rather, to Williamsburg, Virginia, this historic town that uh, kind of chronicles the founding of our country and the history of our country. And while we were there, we went uh, to, this, uh, to this governor's palace, and behind the governor's palace was this life-size maze of these huge like shrubs and stuff that, that, that were real thick and stuff. And, and the idea was that you get into the maze and you try to find your way to the center of the maze. That's kind of the point of a maze, right? And they had this kind of overlooked platform up, a, up a, on the top there. My, my youngest son was real small at the time. So my wife took him up, up to the top of the platform and you could look down upon the maze and watch all the idiot, all the people down there try to figure out how to get in the middle of the maze. So I had my two other boys with me. My oldest son was five at the time and, and the uh, middle son was three. And I said, all right, on, on three, we're going to race and see who can get to the middle of the maze the quickest and the winner gets a prize. So one, two, three, and we all went off. And so I was going through the maze there, and I'm bumping into bushes, you know, kind of chuckling at myself, thinking, well, I'm a, I'm a grown man. I'll, I'll figure this out, you know. It took me a while. And about 10, 15 minutes later, uh, I got to the middle of the maze. Now, what I did not know was that my oldest son had wandered off the reservation. He had, he had left the maze completely because he saw ducks across the lake. 
And being five years old and a little boy, curious, he wanted to see what the ducks were doing. So he was nowhere to be found. That's a whole other story, by the way. But my three, when I got to the middle of the maze, there's my three-year-old standing in the, in the middle. And I said, Stuart, how in the world did you find yourself in the middle of this maze? I mean, this thing is, is hard for an adult. How'd you get here in the middle? And his answer, I'll never forget it. He said, Daddy, I just walked through the bushes. <laughs> little cheater. I'm like, well, that would explain it, you know? Well, you know, what we've been going through in our world today is kind of like a giant, confusing maze. It's a difficult labyrinth. It's something that is perplexing really all of mankind. And one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, what does it mean? I mean, does it have any meaning? And I'm going to be talking today about what in the world is going on from a biblical perspective. And we have to ask ourselves, is it possible that we could be living in what the Bible calls the last days? Now, many people have thought we were living in the last days throughout history. In fact, back in 1811, at the intersection of Arkansas, Tennessee, and Missouri, there's this thing called the New Madras Fault. And on December the 3rd, 1811, about 2 a.m. in the morning, an 8.6 magnitude earthquake hit that area. And the ground opened up and black smoke billowed out of the ground. Animals lost their mind. People were falling all over. Buildings were crumbling. Trees were cracking. In fact, people said that thunder and lightning even came out of the ground during that time. It was so bad that the aftershocks, the reverberation of this earthquake, rang church bells in Boston. They crumbled walls in Cincinnati, and it woke Dolly Madison up out of her bed in the White House. That's how strong this earthquake was. And then not long, just a couple of months after that, there was another aftershock, and the Mississippi River flowed backwards for two hours. That's how strong this earthquake is. And yet, like many earthquakes, there are always these aftershocks that happen afterwards. People always been saying, hey, are we at the end of time? My friend, we are going through, we are in the midst of right now, a global seismic shift that is happening all across the world. And if you're a Christian, you want to know, does this have any apocalyptic or prophetic significance? And that's one of the things we're going to talk about today. Now, as you know, we've been going through a crazy time with this whole COVID thing. In fact, I read, you talk about the mass thing, I read that $166 billion are going to have been spent on masks alone in 2021 across the world. That's a lot of masks going on. And, um, and the, you know, when you talk about a pandemic, the word pan means all, the word demic or demos means people, so pandemic. And uh, we've had about 10 pandemics in the last 300 years, but nothing quite like this. From nations to neighborhoods, there's not a place on planet Earth that has not been affected by this. And, and by the way, in my lifetime, and, and I'm, I'm a relatively, you know, middle-aged person, you know, I've never remembered any time in my lifetime that the whole world was focused on one thing, global unity on one single thing. 9-11 didn't do it. The world wars didn't do it. President Kennedy's assassination didn't do it. You know, all these things, you know, these things didn't do it. But guess what? COVID has done it. 
It has brought people together and dramatically impacted the whole world. Now, how has it uh, impacted us? I want to give you a couple of areas here real quickly before we jump into some scripture together. First, in the area of uh, geopolitically, there's been a renewed push of national cooperation and global unity. I'll talk more about this tonight because tonight I'm going to talk about Satan's Superman, Satan's man of sin, the Antichrist. What is this man like? What does the Bible tell us about it? What kind of intel does God give us about Antichrist? That's tonight. But one of the things we see happening right now is a renewed push for globalism, for something called the Great Reset. They're trying to reset, push the reset button on the whole world. And this COVID crisis, they say, is the perfect opportunity to reshape society and the whole world. And at the same time, the threat of war looms everywhere. More about that later. Secondly, it's affected us economically. Uh, there's been so many nations that have just about gone under during this pandemic. Uh, people have lost their jobs. Perhaps you've been affected by this. Perhaps you were laid off or furloughed or even lost your job because of the pandemic. It's affected us so much that the government then gave us these uh, stimulus checks, right? And uh, Walmart TVs flew off the shelf uh, during that time, right? That's what happened. But all this, this economic impact, but it's, it's affected everybody in this uh, recession. It's affected travel, it's affected commerce, affected the stock market. Uh, it's even affected education. Uh, during the pandemic, 1.5 billion children across the world did not have a school to go to, all because of a tiny virus. It's affected us mentally or emotionally. Uh, there were predictions and fears of emotional instability during this time, and those fears came true. Domestic abuse uh, was on the rise. Suicide attempts were on the rise. In fact, doctors in Northern California reported that they saw a year's worth of suicides in just four weeks' time during the pandemic. People don't know what to do with themselves during this thing. Uh, the effect on children, on married couples, all these things. Then, of course, culturally, racial tension, justice movements, BLM, Antifa. Uh, there's, a, there's a lingering, have you noticed this? There's a lingering hatred in the air. And there's so much division. It's like no matter what the subject is, it's just not, oh, you like vanilla, I like chocolate. No, I hate you because you like vanilla, right? I mean, there's this division that's going on, not just in America, but across the world. And they put you into categories, don't they? They try to label you and put you in different categories. Have you done this yet? Oh, you haven't done it? Oh, well, then you're one of those, right? And so there's this hatred culturally. And then morally, the homosexual agenda has gained even more traction during this time. And the transgender movement has exploded, exploded. In fact, I uh, read recently, it was actually yesterday, where the, the um, Lutheran church has just approved their first transgender bishop in their denomination, uh, this transgender thing. We're at the point now in our, in our world where we're living in an alternate reality, where a person can literally say to themselves, I think or I feel or I believe that I am a different sex or gender than that which God assigned me. And then, poof, magically they are. And all of a sudden, government, education, science, all these things have to get in lockstep with whatever the person says that they are, to the point where the 2019 woman of the year was a man. What an insult to women. And now one of the newest things that's come out is, um, is this thing called furries, 
where people are now identifying as animals. They dress as animals. They think they're kittens. They think they're doggies. They think they're ponies. And some of them go to work like this. I know some of these people that have done this. It's, it's amazing. And, and it's like we're living in this alternate reality. And so while we're being affected economically, the drug companies are making $16 billion in 2021. While we're being, being marginalized as Christians, the moral agenda is now arising. And watch this. I talked about this seven years ago in my book, As It Was in the Days of Noah. And it turns out it's gained even more traction since then. There is a push within the American, excuse me, the American Psychological Association for a, a push to destigmatize and decriminalize pedophilia. So now they want pedophilia, the idea that a grown man or woman can have a, a, a romantic or sexual attraction for a young boy or young girl, that's no longer taboo in their minds. In fact, they want it to be categorized now as another sexual orientation, just like homosexuality is. That's some of the things that are happening uh, in this world. And so basic biology, nah, factual data, I can do without that. I'll just think myself into a new reality. That's the world you're living in. That's the people that you and I come in contact with in our lives today. But it doesn't stop there. It seems like the world's losing its mind, but then it goes even further uh, to a spiritual level. Watch this, 75 to 150 churches close every week in America. That's a lot. 30,000 churches close between 2006 and 2012. We are now experiencing the lowest levels of church attendance in American history. And it's all because we're becoming more and more secularized, more and more influenced by the world's thinking. A third less people went to church during the pandemic lockdown. A third of those have said, we're probably not going to go back. We kind of got used to not going. So by the way, let me give you an encouragement to say thank you for being here. Thank you for realizing that it's important that we come together. But a third of those people are not doing that. According to George Barna, 19% of professing Christians read their Bibles one time a week. 18% read it, um, never read it. 14%, only 14% of Christians say they read their Bibles every day. But during the last year of COVID, that percentage dropped down to 9%. 9%. And is it any wonder that we're not making the impact in our world today because we're not spending time with God? And the church, even the church, is experiencing those declines. Bloomberg had an op-ed recently where they said that we need to get used to the idea that since this pandemic has come upon us, that it's going to be a permanent thing. It's going to be with us forever in some way. So we need to know what it means and how we can respond to it. 41% of Americans believe we're living in the last days. And among people like you and me, it's up to 77%. Watch this. I was in a high school in Arkansas, in Little Rock, Arkansas, the largest Christian high school in the state. There were 500 high school students in the auditorium. And we asked them the question, how many of you guys have ever been taught the book of Revelation? or the book of Daniel, or anything about the end times or Bible prophecy. Crickets. Not a single hand went up. Then we said, how many of you have thought about the end of the world in the past seven days? Every hand went up. So we're not, we're not teaching them about the end times, or about Bible prophecy, but at the same time, they're thinking about it. In fact, the whole world's thinking about it. 
Secular scientists are thinking about the end of the world. And yet we as the church sometimes, we will uh, sometimes ignore it. I believe this present reality that we're in right now dovetails with Scripture's narrative for the end times. And because of that, there's never been a time where we need more biblical discernment than right now. Now, I was interviewed by the Washington Post and the Jerusalem Post, and they said, Jeff, is COVID in the Bible? And I responded confidently, no, COVID is not in the Bible. However, what we do see is the times we're living in right now, I think there are a sneak preview of what's to come. In other words, this is just the warm-up act in all the different areas that I listed a few minutes ago. This is just practice season. This is pre-season of what the Bible says is actually going to happen. What God is trying to do to humanity is he's flashing that check engine light. He's saying, pay attention, pay attention. Don't ignore this or there will be catastrophic consequences. Now, when Jesus was asked about the end times, in fact, this is the last week of Jesus' life, among the last days of his life, his disciples came to him and they asked him this question. On the Mount of Olives, they said, tell us, when will these things be, Lord, and when will they happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They wanted to know what's going to happen. Don't you want to know? I mean, seriously, don't you want to know what God is up to and what he's going to do? Watch this. Jesus didn't say to them, hey, hey, no, 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 no. That's not for you. That's not for you to know. You're not supposed to know anything that's going to happen in the future. In fact, just leave that to smart people like me and prophecy experts. And so, just leave that to me. No, he didn't say that. Jesus launches into what's called the Olivet Discourse, which is, is basically a mini overview of the book of Revelation. And he walks parallel with all the things that happened through the first part of Revelation. Why did he do that? Why do you spend two whole chapters telling him about that? Matthew 24, Matthew 25. Why? Because he wants you to know. He wants you to be informed. He did not want his disciples to just walk around wondering like the rest of humanity does without any hope. Jesus came to the Pharisees. Uh, they came to him, rather, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Watch this. He said, he replied, when evening comes, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it'll be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. Do you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? These were the teachers of Israel. These were the most uh, prominent, prolific experts in the scriptures, and yet they didn't know that the sign of the times was standing in front of them. They completely missed it, and Jesus doesn't want us to miss it. That's why I say sometimes that, that eschatology is not a theological accessory item. You know, it's not like we walk around the biblical buffet going, uh, salvation, yes, I'll have some of that. Uh, power and overcoming temptation, get me a little bit of that. Uh, prophecy, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. I don't want to get fat, you know. That's like dessert, right? I don't want to do that. No, it's not an accessory item. And, and how do we know that? How do we know God wants us to know what he says about what's going to happen in the world? A couple of things. Here are a couple of fast facts about Bible prophecy. One is that prophecy makes up nearly 30% of the entire Bible. Almost a third of your Bible is prophecy. There are over a thousand prophecies uh, in your Bible. One out of every 30 verses in the New Testament contains Bible prophecy. 23 out of 27 books mention Jesus' second coming. In fact, every time Jesus' first coming is mentioned in the New Testament, his second coming is mentioned eight times. So eight times more about the future than about what had already happened. 
There are about 333 prophecies concerning Christ in the Bible. Only 109 of them have been fulfilled. That leaves 224 prophecies about your Lord that have not yet been fulfilled. That's pretty amazing. Also, some 500 total prophecies remain unfulfilled. You say, where are these prophecies at? I've been reading my Bible. They're there. And then the last book of the Bible is 95% prophecy. So think about this. God has only written one book. He's only written one book. And he chose to end it with a book that tells us what's going to happen on planet Earth and how we should know about it and how we should prepare for it. 95% prophecy. So God's trying to tell us something. He could have ended the Bible anyway, right? It's his book. I get to end my books any way I want to. God gets to end his book any way he wants to. He could have said, now, in conclusion, I want you guys to uh, love one another. And we'd go, oh, that's so sweet of God. Isn't God sweet to say that? Or he could have said, now, don't forget the things I told you in the other 65 books. That's very important. We'd go, oh, that's good. I need to be a good student of the Bible. Or, or God could have said something like, y'all not, now be nice to each other and don't fight, okay? Because I want my children to get along. He's like, that's a good word for me because I don't like him, right? But God didn't do that. He says, I want you to know what's going to happen. These things that are about to take place, God says. And so here's how I like to look at them. Some of you women can identify with this. Um, there are these things that women get when they're pregnant, and they're called Braxton Hicks contractions, Okay. Now, there are labor pains, birth pains, and some of you ladies are like, please don't talk about that again. Uh, I've just been through that. And, you know, look, when my wife went through it, she became another human being. I'm going to tell you something. With our first child, I mean, I thought she was demon-possessed. I really did. I thought I had to first exercise her before she had the baby because she became a completely another person, right? But watch this. Birth pains, as you get closer to the birth, they increase two ways. They increase in intensity, and they increase with frequency, Okay. Braxton Hicks contractions are not real birth pangs, but they sure do feel like it, according to women I've interviewed, okay? They're, they're supposed to, to, to tell you that, yeah, the baby's going to come, just not right now. The things that you and I read about in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 about the actual end of days, in Revelation about the actual end of time, those are the birth pangs. What we're experiencing right now are what I call Braxton Hicks contractions. This whole COVID phenomenon, no one knows it's not in the Bible. It's Braxton Hicks. What does that mean, Jeff? It means that it's preparing you for the real thing. That's what it means. It means that you, you can't have Braxton Hicks contractions unless you actually are pregnant. And then eventually the real birth pangs come. And so these, these preview pains, I call them, are all over the world. They're reverberating all over the planet right now. And it's as if God is saying, look, we are ripe for revelation. We're ripe for revelation. Now, tomorrow night, I'm going to talk about the next prophetic, prophetic event on God's calendar. And if there are any signs that we can look for that'll lead up to that prophetic event, but that'll be tomorrow night. Now, the question you want to know is, so how do these aftershocks play into God's prophetic plan? I mean, are there any prophecies, anything in the Bible that tells us these days were coming? Let me give you a couple of them here. There's prophecies regarding our culture. If you'll read, now, and we could do a whole message here, a whole series here on Romans chapter 1, because Romans chapter 1 basically says this in a nutshell. Every human being on the planet knows there's a God. Yes, even the atheists. Yes, even the agnostics. They know that God exists. Why? Because God says, I put it in your conscience 
and I also put it in creation. And I've not left myself without witness. My, my stars every night are traveling preachers saying there's a higher being out there. But when you reject that knowledge and suppress that knowledge, God says, I'll make you stupid. And that's what happens in Romans 1. It says that because their, their minds are darkened because they reject God's truth, they have to, it says, speculate regarding reality. And so they have to, in other words, make up a new reality because they don't like the one that God has given to them about the earth, about sexuality, about marriage, about relationships, about everything. And so they have to make up their own. And God says, because of that, they think they're smarter than me, God says. And it says in verse 22, it says, professing themselves to be wise, it says they become fools. And that word fool is the Greek word moros, which we get our word moron from. So wait a minute, are you saying that God's that calling people a moron that, that reject his truth and make up their own reality? No, I didn't say that. God said that. He says you're a moron. You're an absolute moron. Because think about it. You're rejecting the creator who has a superior mind, who loves us more than we could possibly know. And yet we go, no, I think I've got a better idea because my mind's the size of a BB. And I think I've figured this whole thing out, right? No, God says, no, you're a moron. God says when a culture does that, it leads to a not only an atheistic revolution, but a sexual revolution, it says in Romans 1, beginning of verse 26, and then a homosexual revolution. And at the end of that passage, God says, you know where it ends up? It ends up where I say, if this is what you want, this is what you're going to get. And God says he will deliver a culture over to itself and let you just have what you want. And in the end of that passage, my friend, it says that they end up becoming haters of God, inventors of evil. And we have a whole evil factory going on in our culture in the world today. We're inventing new ways to be evil. It's just as it was, Matthew 24 says, in the days of Noah. In the days of Noah of godlessness, rampant sexuality, uh, violence all across the world. And God said, that's it. I'm done with humanity. That's where we are. So there are prophecies uh, regarding that as well. All right, over in, uh, the, about the church here. Are there any prophecies about the church? People say, Jeff, do you believe there's going to be a, a last day's revival? There's going to be this great revival to sweep across the land, and, it, and people are going to get saved. There's going to be this massive thing. It's going to be amazing. Maybe, but there's not a single verse in the Bible that says there's going to be a great revival in the last days. You know what the Bible does say? The Bible says in the last days, there's going to be a great falling away. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now, where people are now redefining, rewriting, reimagining the Bible to fit their own mindset and their own preconceived ideas of what, what they think Jesus should be. We're inventing a new Jesus for a new generation. Uh, many Christian leaders and worship leaders are now deconstructing their faith which is another word of saying, I reject what the Bible says. I want to make up my own religion, my own Jesus, one that fits me, you know? It's like a custom-made Jesus. That's what they want. Now, whole denominations now are leaving the faith and uh, ordaining lesbian, homosexual pastors. Not just that, but they're just leaving the scriptures altogether in, in lieu of self-help sermons. I mean, sermonettes for Christianettes, someone said. It's like someone said, you know, most churches today are nothing more than a light show, a rock concert, followed by a TED talk, you know, just something to make you feel good, you know. Oh, man, I felt so good after that. It was just great, you know. The goal is not to feel good. The goal is to hear from God and to see what God says. 
And yet we're seeing this in the church today, uh, all across uh, our land, really all across the world. In fact, when I was over in England, I've taken about 15 trips over to England, 3% of the population of England attends church, 3%. And that's all churches combined. That's Catholic, Protestant, you know, Church of England, everything over there, 3%. There is such a pervasive godlessness over there that when we go speak into the schools over there, we talk about Jesus and many of the students, the teenagers over there, they're like, I've never heard that name. What is, what is Jesus? Or they say things like, you know, was he that bloke back a long time ago that wore a robe? You know, or they have no idea who Jesus Christ is. And you and I are living in an increasing secularized society. In fact, we are officially in a post-Christian society. You and I cannot assume anymore that people know anything about God or about the Bible or about the gospel or anything. We have to start with the ABCs with them. We have to start with goo-goo-ga-ga, spiritually speaking. Does that make sense? That's where people are. You can assume nothing about what they know about God, and you have to begin from the very, very beginning. How about the nations? What does God say about the nations? The Bible says in the last days there are going to be wars and rumors of wars, and it's going to increase and become more frequent as we get closer to the actual last days. In fact, in, in May of, last, of this past year, there were 4,971 rockets fired into Israel in just one week, and yet their Iron Dome protected them from being annihilated. There, there are countries that have surrounded Israel exactly, by the way, coincidentally, like the Bible said it would happen in the last days, that their sworn goal is to erase and eradicate the nation Israel from planet Earth. They want to wipe the Jews off the planet. And if you want to do an interesting study, ask yourself this question, why do people hate the Jews so much? Everywhere they go, people hate the Jews. Why have throughout history, people tried to wipe the Jews off of planet Earth? Do the homework, do the study, you'll find out it's a very interesting reason why that happens. Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, 11, there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines. And Jesus talked about these, these things. In fact, Revelation 6, there's coming a pandemic, there's coming a plague in Revelation 6 during what's called the sealed judgments that combined with some war and famine are going to wipe out a fourth of the world's population. A fourth. And if that were to happen today, that'd be about two billion people would die from this, this combined phenomenon. So Jesus prophesied that. And then he says this in Luke 21, 26, he says, because of this, he said, grown men will faint from fear and the expectation about what's coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Grown men. I think the number one emotion that people have felt in these past two years or so that you and I have been living is fear. It's just fear. We're afraid of everything. Some, you go in the grocery store and somebody goes, <coughs> and they go, oh my gosh. Like 12 people scatter, you know. They run the aisles they'd never go to, you know, right? We're just afraid of everything in the world today. And uh, I, I talk about in my book, Aftershocks, there's this whole litany of fears that we're going through on this thing. What's the answer to that? How do we overcome that fear? I believe the stage is being set for these prophetic signs to continue to emerge into existence. Say, Jeff, well then, what in the world uh, is God up to? What am I supposed to do during this time? Is there anything for me to do as a Christian? Let me give you a couple things and we'll wrap it up here. Number one, do not be deceived. 
Do not be deceived. You know, one of the things that comes, in fact, Jesus said this, the very first thing he said to his disciples when they said, what's going to be the timing of your coming? What's it going to be like when you come? The very first thing he said to them was, do not be misled. Why? Because he said false Christs and false prophets are going to rise everywhere. And that's what's happened during this pandemic is all of this false information just comes out of the woodwork. I mean, it's the thing about the internet, right? I mean, anybody with a microphone thinks they're an expert now on the internet. It's like, oh, I have a webcam. I must be important. No, you're not. You're not important. You're just a geek with a webcam. That's all you are. You're thinking way too highly of yourself. You know, it's like you just, your goal in life is to be an Instagram influencer. How about just be a good person? How about that, you know, for a change, right? But these people think they, you know, they know stuff. All this false information, you got to watch out even among evangelicals. This is why biblical discernment is so important. Uh, that we um, that we know about this deception. That's the second thing. Do not be uninformed. You know, when Christ rose from the dead, and he's walking on the road to Emmaus, and he, he meets these two disciples, and they're like, "Oh man, Jesus, man, he's gone." And Jesus walks up beside him and says, "Hey, what are you guys talking about?" He goes, "Well, you know, our Lord and everything. And where you been, man? This has been the talk of town and all this stuff, and we don't know what to do now. It's all over." And Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't go, "Hey guys, come here, bring it in, come here, listen." I get it, man. I know how you're feeling. I can identify. I'm with you on this thing. He didn't do any of that. He looked at him and said, you're fools. Why did Christ call his own disciples fools? He said, because you should have known these things were coming by studying Bible prophecy. If you'd have read what Moses said about me, you'd have known that this was what's going to happen. The scripture says he walks them through the Old Testament prophecies about him to get them to the point where they can be informed. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians regarding uh, the rapture, which we're going to talk about uh, on Monday night, he says, do not be uninformed. In fact, he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, he says, uh, really verses 1 through 3, he says, if anybody comes to you with a supposed spirit or a message like a vision or a letter supposedly written by God. He says, don't believe them. Only believe, he says, what the scripture says. See, God wants us to know, which leads us to the third thing we can do is to trust the word of God. Listen, there's, not, there's not, no single thing that you and I can land our feet upon and say, this is the concrete reality that I can trust come hell or high water, the word of God. I mean, I'm going to get it wrong somewhere, but God's word's never going to get it wrong. Did you know the Bible is batting a thousand? Any baseball fans? Hello? You bat 300 for your career, you're in the hall of fame. The Bible is batting a thousand. You know what that means? It has never missed on a single prophecy. It's never whiffed. It's never foul ball. It's never walked. It's a home run every time, all the time, because you know how many prophecies were fulfilled from the Old Testament into the New Testament? every single one of them concerning Christ, literally and exactly the way the Bible said they would. So if I'm, if I'm a betting man, you know, I'm going to bank on the Bible here instead of banking on what I feel or what I read out there or what some idiot says on the internet. I'm going to go with the Word of God. The Bible is something we can trust. And then finally, it's time to seize the moment. Seize the moment. Let me go back here a second. I want you to see that here. It's time to seize the moment and to share the hope. Here we go. I want you to see this. Oh, gosh, this thing's going crazy on me here. All right, here we go. What can I do? Boom, 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 and boom. Ah, oh, it's going to go anyway. Forget it. 
All right, here we go. I'll just tell you, you got brains, right? Seize the moment and share the hope. This is our golden hour. You say, wait a minute, I didn't choose to be born in this century. No, you didn't, but God chose it. God chose for you to be born right now. Do you know that right now, the times we're living in, all this craziness that we're living in, this maze we're walking through, are the most exciting times in all of human history. You know why? Because God is bringing everything to a great crescendo. God is bringing history to its appointed end, and you get to play a part in what he's doing in the world. And it's time for Christians to stop just sitting in the stands and cheering for the team, but to put on a uniform and to strap on a helmet and get on the field and get involved in what God is doing. Because you and I can make a difference in this world. That's why Tozier said this. That's why he said, a a scared world needs a fearless church. We need everybody all in. We need everybody on the field ready to go. Because this is an open door right now that, that may and actually will be shut soon. And you and I need to take advantage of it. There's something worse than COVID. You know that? The Bible calls it sin. It's a pandemic that doesn't affect a certain percentage of humanity. It affects all of humanity. It doesn't have a 0.2% mortality rate. It has a 100% mortality rate. In fact, sin's kill ratio is one to one. It kills everybody. And if you're a Christian, you have the answer to that disease, that, that sin virus living inside you. And his name is Jesus Christ. Billy Graham tells this story in his autobiography, Just As I Am. He said, I had the chance to, to counsel many, many presidents. And he said, I'll never forget the time that I had the chance to be with John F. Kennedy. It was right after his inauguration. And he said, right after inauguration, President Kennedy walked up to me and he said, Mr. Graham, would you ride with me in my limousine back to the White House? And Graham said, oh yeah, I'd be happy to do that, Mr. President. So I got into the limo and they're riding back to the White House. And Kennedy said, I want to ask you a question. He said, do you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ? Dr. Graham said, well, yes, yes, I do. Of course I do. It's in the Bible. And Kennedy said, well, does my church, the Catholic church, do they believe in the second coming of Christ as well? And Graham said, well, it's in their doctrine. They, they should. Kennedy said, hmm, that's very, very interesting. I'd like to talk to you some more about this. And then they got to the White House and went their separate ways. Fast forward a couple of years later. It's at the National Prayer Breakfast in January 1963. And both Kennedy and Graham got up and made a short speech. And afterwards... President Kennedy said to Graham one more time, he said, Mr. Graham, would you ride with me in my limo back to the White House? And Graham paused and he said, you know, I'd been battling this virus, this flu. And I said to the president, Mr. President, I'm not feeling very well. I think we should probably do this another time. Could we do this another time? Kennedy said, sure, no problem. Nine months later, Kennedy was assassinated. And Billy Graham writes in his autobiography, just as I am, he says this. He says, that in my life was what I call an irrecoverable moment. You can't get it back. Once it's gone, it's gone. He says, I lived the rest of my life with that regret. My friends, we are living in the irrecoverable moment of human history. There is nothing as important as the time in which you are living in right now because God put you here. And we have the opportunity not only to embrace the hope that Christ has given to us, but also to share that hope with others. 
in a world in confusion, in a world that's killing themselves, in a world that's, that's numbing themselves with, with mind-numbing opioids and doing all sorts of things, it's you and I who have the answer in them. Is God doing something? Yeah, you bet he is. Is he preparing the world for something? Yes. This world is like a giant cruise ship headed towards an appointed destination, and you and I are on this ship. The question is, what are we going to do with the time that God's given to us? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are the author of human history. You are the one who wrote it, who scripted it, who is directing it. And like the greatest storyteller of all time, you're bringing it to its climactic conclusion. And Lord, we're watching it happen before our eyes. We're watching prophecy and formation. But Lord, we need discerning eyes and ears to see that. We need to be able to know what your word says in order to see, as if with night vision goggles, what no one else can see in the world. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit, they don't have the Scripture. Lord, we can see that. God, will there be some believers today who'll say, God, I need to to step up my game. I need to get into your word. My mind is in a million places, but it's sure in your word. I need to know what you say about the times in which I'm living so I can be like the the sons of Issachar of the Old Testament. Men who discern the times with wisdom as to what Israel should do. Lord, we need Christians like that. Lord, we need Christians who are willing to share the hope of Jesus Christ in the most hopeless time that any of us can remember. Christ is the hope of mankind. Lord Jesus, maybe there's someone here tonight, or this morning rather, they don't have that hope. They have no idea what's going on in the world. They're just like me walking around that maze, just hoping to find some semblance of meaning or purpose or significance in life. I would just say, if you're here today and you don't know this Jesus, you don't know this Bible, you don't know these things that we've talked about, that Jesus Christ stands ready to receive you, to forgive you. If you would just call upon his name, trust in the payment that he has made for your sins on the cross and receive the gift of eternal life. Lord, we all need to come to you. And we need to come to you right now for the world and for the time which we live. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening and being a part of this week's podcast. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to visit our website, hopeforourtimes.com, and check out the many resources we have to offer. On our website, we have books, DVDs, and daily news articles that will always keep you up to date on the times we're living in. If you'd like to see the video version of this week's podcast, you can find us at Hope For Our Times on YouTube. God bless, and we'll talk to you next time.